Traveling and sickness have delayed this. I'm currently recording from my grandparents' basement. But I am very much looking forward to releasing this interview with Dr. Kate Darling. Dr. Darling is a research specialist at MIT's Media Lab, and she's the author of The New Breed, What Our History with Animals Reveals About Our Future with Robots. And I'll be talking with her about exactly that. So are robots going to replace humans? Are they going to replace animals? Or are they their own thing, as her book implies? And if they are their own thing, how do they fit into society as we know it? Where's the ethical, legal, and labor implications of this? What is going to happen? And that is what we will be discussing today. So let's get into it. I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is Aiming for the Moon podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast and subscribe. If you want behind-the-scenes stuff and updates, go to our social media platforms at Aiming the Number 4 Moon on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to see our merch and my behind-the-scenes newsletter, go to our website at aimingforthemoon.com. And with that, let's get into the interview. Well, welcome, Dr. Darling, to Aiming for the Moon. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you wrote a very interesting book called The New Breed. And the thing that's interesting about it is usually we don't think of robots as the new breed, quote unquote. To begin, can you kind of give your thesis for what exactly you're proposing? Because it was something I'd never heard before until I came across your book. Yeah, so... My experience in talking to people about robots, which I've been doing obsessively for the past 10 or so years, is that we are often subconsciously comparing them to people, to humans. We view robots as objects, but when we talk about them, we talk about robots replacing jobs, or people will always ask me if, you know, having my kids at home uh, means that I'm kind of watching them and studying them like little mini artificial intelligences. Or even if you do like a Google image search for the word robot, you get a lot of robots that look kind of humanoid. They have a head and a torso and arms and legs. So it always struck me that this is kind of a weird comparison to make since artificial intelligence isn't like human intelligence at all. You know, we have calculators that can do calculations and uh, do a lot of things that you know, computers can do a lot of things that people can't do. But then, you know, AI is really bad at certain things that we're really good at, like understanding context or uh, not falling over when we're walking around. So I always thought that the better analogy for robots would be animals, since animals We have such a wide variety of them. They can sense, think, make autonomous decisions and learn just like robots. And they do things that are different than we do. And they have different types of skills and intelligence. So I I, um, started looking into some of the parallels between how we've domesticated animals and used them in the past for work and weaponry and even companionship. And it just struck me as a better way to think about robots as we talk about the future of AI and robotics, um, both in terms of how we integrate them into the workforce, but also in terms of how we relate to them emotionally. I want to kind of ask an unfair question that you brought up in the beginning of the book. What exactly is a robot? Because (laughs) the reason it's kind of unfair, it's kind of like saying, 
what is the species of humankind? Because there's so many different things that people do and so many different things are like, what is animals? So it's unfair, but is it, because when I was thinking about it, it almost sounds like an algorithm that can move. And for those who don't know, an algorithm is a computer program that has, does a specific task. Hopefully I described that pretty well. Um, but how would you, so ro- if robotics has many different branches, if you have the robots that help build things, the robots who are social robots and that kind of diverse area, is there a broad term that we could use? Do they move? Like how do they differentiate themselves from computers or something that just sits on your desk? Yeah, what would you kind of say? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's one that comes up a lot because there's no like super good airtight definition of what a robot is. Um, I would say most roboticists would define a robot as, like you said, it's something that moves. It's it has to be moving in our physical space. So it's not just, you know, a chat bot or that's that's the difference between robots and AIs, that robots tend to be physically embodied and moving. Um, and th- there's this sense, think, act paradigm where they define a robot as something that can sense the environment somehow, somehow make a decision based on the data that it's collecting. So an autonomous decision and then act on its environment again, Um, which sounds great and makes sense in a lot of contexts, but no definition is completely airtight. And that one, you know, breaks down when you think about things like your smartphone, which can also sense its environment and make decisions and act on its environment by by vibrating, but no roboticist would call a smartphone a robot. So I think, you know, while it's hard to find a really, really good definition of robot, the thing, the part of the reason I wrote this book is because when we think about what a robot is, we kind of do have this definition in our minds. We have this vision of this thing that we know from science fiction and it often looks humanoid. And so I do, I am trying to shift that automatic assumption that people have in their heads. So that's really interesting. And is thinking defined as, would it be considered something that has to be programmed or is AI thinking something that can kind of interpret the world and almost learn on its own? What exactly is defined as thinking here? So thinking would be, and and again, it's messy because even roboticists call some things robots that aren't actually thinking and are just like, executing a program that is completely predictable. But some of the newer um, AI models that we have, I would say come closer to actual thinking where they're taking in an input, they're crunching data and, and doing something with it and making a decision that the programmers couldn't even anticipate. Um, so as AI advances, we're seeing more and more of the that type of thinking where um, it's truly autonomous in the sense that no one knew what was going to happen. That's really interesting. So going on to what you talk about in your book, you kind of, it's, you obviously use animals as an example. In if we applied your theory and we started using robots almost like animals or building them in a more specific animal-like way instead of a humanistic way, if that's a word, I might have just invented that, Um how exactly would we all interact with these three sections, these ecosystems? So you have humanity over here doing, I don't know, let's just say the thinking tasks. And then you have animals who are doing what they do now, maybe, like the companions, the horses, maybe, and the horse-drawn carriages for those that still exist. And the robots, where would they fit into this? Would they replace animals or would they do things that are a combination of human-animal tasks? Where would you put them into our current world? Right. Yes. Yeah, so the reason I titled the book The New Breed is because 
kind of like you said, I think they are something new. Like I, I like to illustrate all these parallels to, that they have to animals, but I obviously don't think that they're going to replace animals either. I think that they are a new type of skill and intelligence that just like we've kind of integrated animals into our society, we're going to be able to do this with robots as well. Um, now, what they end up doing depends entirely on us. Because right now, I see a lot of trying to recreate human skills and, and actually replace human jobs and tasks. And I don't think that robots are particularly good at that, like I've already said. So I think that a lot of the applications that robots will be great for are things that neither animals or humans can do, but robots are really good at. Um, and uh, it, in some cases, they might directly replace something. So uh, about a month or two ago, I got to swim with a robotic dolphin. And it was really, really interesting because it looked just like a real dolphin. Um, it was an amazing experience. And the reason that they built this dolphin, it's these guys who used to do film props for movies. And so they made this really realistic dolphin and they want to replace the dolphins at SeaWorld because those animals don't get treated very well, but they want kids to have the experience of interacting with a dolphin and becoming interested in conservation efforts. And so in some cases, I do think we could see a direct replacement of robot and animal in a way that's great for animals and people. Um, but for the most part, uh, I think that there is some really interesting use cases in therapy and education for robots where it's not something that animals are able to do and it's not something that people are able to do. So one example is that, um, uh, uh, sorry, the there's there's this interesting effect that robots tend to have on both kids and adults where we understand that it's just a robot, that it can't judge us, that it's not... Um, it doesn't have any feelings about what we're doing, but we still treat it like a social actor. And that tends to help in therapy or educational context, because when people don't feel judged, they tend to open up more. They tend to be more open to making mistakes. And so this is just very early research, but they're showing that robots can help people learn things or help people in a therapeutic context in a way that you know other people can't. And animals can to some extent, there's animal therapy, but animals can't really talk to you. So there's some really interesting things coming up where we're thinking a little bit outside of the box about what a robot could be good for and thinking about the new things that they could offer us instead of just trying to recreate what we already have. In the therapy case, it almost seems like the, so it's an interesting combination because it has the animal thing where it's actually not a human, but it also has the human, it's human enough in order to be able to speak and, it, and in order to elicit responses in the first place. So it's almost, in that case, it's a direct taking out of the humanity of the robot that in order, like, that basically gives you that response, it seems like. Would that be a, a way of saying it? Yeah, it's it's just human or lifelike enough to make you interact with it on a social level, but it's not, a, it doesn't come with the baggage of humans. That's very interesting. So... How exactly it's so this is all a very interesting concept and something that I found fascinating at the beginning of the book, you were talking about the cultural differences and how people react to robots. So in America, when you Google robots, you see the Terminator and you see like robots it's like, oh, no, the world's coming to a close. Robots are taking over. Um, but versus Japan, where it's more like companion and it's more 
the, we're coexisting together. How exactly are the cultural interpretations of robots around the world? Yeah, there's some research on this, um, and and it's it's a little bit limited, but there's definitely there definitely seems to be a huge difference between how people in the Western world, like in America or in Europe, react to robots versus um, in Japan, for example, where it might be because of the country's history of Shintoism, which is a religion that believes that everything has a soul, um, even objects, uh, or it might be because the science fiction stories that they tell about robots tend to be more positive, whereas ours tend to be more Terminator and the robots are going to take over and kill us all. Um, we don't know exactly why, but yeah, there tends to be more of a acceptance of robots in Japan where people, uh, they don't think it's weird to, you know, become companions with a robot. They also aren't afraid of robots taking their jobs. They view robots as a driver of productivity and growth for their country. So yeah, it's it's really interesting to see how people react differently around the world, and a lot has to do with you know our cultural upbringing, um, and and not exactly a lot to do with the technology itself. Is part of the reason why we can use robots more as animals? Is it because of the technolo- technological limitations, or is it something like once technology advances in such a way, it would just be easier in order to like replace human jobs in a sense, if that makes sense? Or is it something where you're proposing the way we build technology doesn't actually have to go towards um, replacing human jobs, if that makes sense? So is it the reason why we use animals now, or we can use animals as an interpretation for robots is because of our technological limitations? Or are you proposing like, you know, an innovation strategy? Both. So first of all, you know, animals aren't good at doing strictly human jobs for the most part. And so it doesn't make sense to use them to, you know, record this podcast. If you were a dog, we wouldn't be having much of a conversation, right? Um, But animals also have skill sets that are supplemental to ours. They're different from ours and they're better than ours. They can sense things we can't. They can go faster. They're stronger in some senses. They can fly through the air. And so we've used animals throughout history and partnered with them to do what we can't do. And so when it comes to robots, I think, first of all, robots are not good at doing a lot of human jobs. Um, And and I think that in, in terms of innovation strategy, it's very short-sighted to just be trying to get them to the place where they can do that. And I think it's frankly boring to try to just create, you know, a quasi-human. We already have humans that can do things. It would be much more long-term efficient and uh, interesting to create robots that can help us do things we can't do. Um, So it's both. It's, I, I think that We are never going to get to the point where we create a robot that can do exactly what a human can do. And I don't think that's where we should be going. Something, the other part of your book that I found very fascinating was how robots would interact with society on a legal level, on a social level, and not just on a technological level. So there's a famous test called the turning test for those who don't know. It's basically... I believe it's if it's you can prove something sen- um, sentient, if it can basically interpret, it can act like a human when a chat sit, um, situation. Is that a, a good description of it? If it can fool a human into thinking it's a human, then it passes the Turing test. Yeah. So 
how exactly if so if let's say we have we give robots the ability to talk a little bit like that but they're also doing jobs maybe not human jobs but you know they're helping they're helping along the world um along the way what legal and ethical implications does that bring in if they're not animals and they're not humans what are they and how should we treat them like how do you develop a legal system for a new creation, if that makes sense. Like you right. proposed some theories, so let's hear them. Yeah, so it's it's tricky because um, there was actually just this very recent news story where a chatbot um, that is being developed by Google, uh, one of the engineers at Google believes that it's sentient and that it should have a defense attorney and it should have rights. And so there's been a lot of conversation around, okay, is this chatbot sentient and what does that mean? And when we get there, what is what does that mean for um, you know, ethical and legal responsibility towards these machines? And what strikes me is that um I, well, I don't. I don't think that this chatbot is sentient. Um, I, and and by sentient, I mean I just mean I don't think it's doing what this guy thinks it's doing. Um, I think that he's projecting a lot onto it. But people are going to do that, right? As this technology gets more advanced, and I think that one of the things that's helpful to look at is the history of animal rights and how we've thought about our moral responsibility towards animals. I think it's interesting to look at because it shows that we are actually very um, superficial creatures, at least when it comes to animals. If you look at the animals that we've given rights versus the animals we haven't, it's very much about what animals we find cute or what animals that we culturally relate to. And it's less about whether they're sentient. Um, whatever, whatever definition of sentience we have, it's less about that. And so often in science fiction, um, the comparison of robot rights is the com is a comparison to human rights, but I think that the history of animal rights is way more illustrative of how these discussions are going to start happening because we haven't even decided yet if animals are conscious in the same ways that people are, and we've been living with animals for you know millions billions of years. So um, as robots get developed, what I see happening is the robots that we relate to more that either appeal to us visually or appeal to us intellectually, I think we're going to have much more affinity for them and want to treat them differently than robots that look different or, or do different things. And I think it's a good moment in time to stop and think about whether that really makes sense and whether that's what we want to be like, both towards robots and towards animals. Because I think that most of us wouldn't view ourselves that way. Most of us would say, I care about what a creature actually can experience. And I care about actual suffering and actual intelligence. I don't, I'm not superficial and just like want to protect a cute, fluffy baby seal robot over a real, you know, animal. Um, and yet in our behavior, it shows that we default to that. So I think that it's a, it's a good moment in time to reflect and what will happen depends on what we decide to do. Isn't partly the problem here, it kind of goes back to what exactly even gives us rights in the first place, even as humans. So is it the fact that we are alive and breathing? And then if so, what it even constitutes being alive? Is it the fact that I breathe or is it the fact that I think? It probably comes goes back to is basically a robot only acting as like it has thought like is it almost like a parrot if you talk to a parrot which parrots some of them can speak as we found 
um, not in just repeat words? Is it basically a robot repeating words or is it necessarily, does it even have something there? Is it just an algorithm that goes, oh, okay, here, say this and this, or it's figured out how to act like it can say this and this? Um, is it what exactly goes back to life? Like, why do we even have rights, even as humans? Why don't I want to die, for example? And why do you have the right not to die? I think that, would you agree that that's kind of where this puts us as a culture and as a society? Yeah. And it's it's a big question that we still haven't fully resolved because there are different theories for why we give rights. And when we're just thinking about humans, I mean, obviously we've had a very troubled history and present with even just deciding what humans deserve, which rights, but at least with humans, we tend to have a sense that, you know, whatever consciousness is, whatever sentience is, we all have that. So that we haven't had to like really define what that is, but for some rights theories, you have to define like, what does it mean? Is it is it that something can suffer? Does that mean that it should have rights? Is it that something has reached a certain level of intelligence? Does that mean it should have rights? Is it not about that at all? There's a, there's a rights theory that is not about whether an animal can suffer, but is about whether it's actually desensitizing or harmful to people if they are cruel towards the animals. So that's the Kantian theory of animal rights, which isn't even about the animals themselves. It's just about, oh, if you treat animals cruelly, then that makes you a cruel human. And therefore, we need to give animals rights to protect ourselves. And so that type of theory could even apply to a robot that doesn't feel anything. Um, If we say, oh, it's, it's actually really bad for people to beat up robots that look really lifelike and like look like a dog, for example, um, then we should protect the robot from being beaten up just to protect ourselves. So there's, there's so many different rights theories, and we haven't decided on on you know which is the right one i think a lot of people again believe that we should care about what's going on inside of something um like whether that's that something has a soul whether that is something is intelligent or can suffer i think that um that's probably like the dominant theory that people believe in now, but our behavior doesn't reflect it. And so I think there's some grappling we need to do with that hypocrisy inside of us. I agree. The other thing that I find very interesting is if you look back to like, where do rights come from and where does life come from? If you argue, you could argue that it's best, um, it is given to you by whatever created you. So for evolution, you evolved in order and that has kind of given you the way to basically everything that was evolved has the right to live or something like that. Or uh, intelligent design, whatever was created by the intelligent designer was bestowed the ability to live, bestowed the ability to live. But with robots, it's interesting because we created them. They're not the same as animals where we didn't all kind of evolve and come up all together. So do have they earned the ability to live? Is it even a possibility for them? Or is that only something for living things that have come from evolution or an intelligent designer? And if you want to go even deeper, you could say that actually robots have come from an intelligent designer because, well, if you consider us intelligent. So it's kind of this rabbit hole. And do they even deserve the same treatment as animals or humans in general just because of where they, their origin? What would you kind of say to that that discussion there? Well, I think you're absolutely right that that is going to be a big conversation moving forward. And 
I think that in some ways the conversation is philosophical because again, I think our actual behavior is not actually going to follow any right theory that we believe in because it hasn't with animals either. Um, but I, I am like very excited for these conversations to happen and for society to have to figure this out because we haven't had to figure this out before. What do we do with an intelligence that we have created? Um, and what does that mean? What does that say about us humans? What does that mean for the rights of, like you said, something that's that you know didn't evolve with us or wasn't designed with us? So, um, you know, I'm just <laughs> I'm I'm kind of excited um, for this moment in time where robots are increasingly coming into shared spaces and the design is getting better and we're going to have to grapple with these issues. And I personally hope that I just hope that we can come down on the side of, oh, um, we haven't actually been living our values when it comes to animals, for example, who probably, you know, deserve some sort of better treatment than they're getting right now, uh, which a lot of us don't want to see. Um, and that we can resolve that at the same time that we're discussing how to handle robots. That's very true. So as one of our last kind of fun questions before we do the last two anchor questions that for the podcast, when does this matter? So at the moment, the closest thing I have to a robot friend is my Roomba, who basically died. Poor Charles, rest in peace, Charles, Aww. which is another phenomenon that everyone names their robots. Um, but when does this matter? So at the moment, Charles, my Roomba, he doesn't have the intelligence that I would um, feel free giving him, I don't know, freedom speech or something like that. Freedom of roaming, if that's a thing for Roomba. <laughs> um, when does this matter? So is this like a 10-year thing? Like when I'm driving around and, I don't know, off, off to college, am I going to see a robot? Or when, like, when does this have to, when does the asteroids cr um, collide here for society? Well, it's, I think there are some questions that are more longer term that will happen when robots are, you know, a little bit more developed because, you know, Charles, rest in peace, Charles, you know, wasn't the smartest robot in the world. He probably just like roamed around your floor and cleaned it. Um, and then, but I do think that there are some questions that are happening right now. And it's interesting that you mentioned freedom of speech because, we do now have AI systems that can create text, for example, and write journalism or, you know, create advertisements or, you know, what have you. And so there's already some discussion happening around, well, if a company owns this AI and this AI says something, is that like, is there freedom of speech, you know, for the AI, for the company? Like, what does this mean? Um, so there's there's all these interesting legal questions that are already popping up because of this autonomous behavior that's generated. Um, if we're talking about the Kantian rights theory of, is it desensitizing to be cruel towards robots? We've already seen stuff also in the AI space where you know, parents have gotten upset because their kids are talking to Alexa and they learn to just command Alexa around without saying please or thank you. And they're worried that that behavior just translates to their kids becoming, you know, less polite to anyone. Um, 
We don't know whether that's true or not, but there was enough concern that the companies released a feature called the magic word feature where Alexa will make you say please and thank you. Um, so there's also some conversations already happening around, does our behavior towards robots actually change how we treat other people? Um, so there are things that are coming up now. And I think the sooner we can start having these conversations, the better it will be because it's going to take us a while to figure out how to resolve some of these things. And it's also going to take some more research and human robot interaction to answer questions like, you know, is it bad for you if you beat up a robot or is that a healthy outlet for violent behavior? We just don't know any of these things. So um, I think we should be talking about all of it now. Well, I guess as the technology evolves, I don't think our philosophical discussion is going to evolve at the same rate, from which, at least in my lifetime, it's already skyrocketing. So, And the philosophical discussion is coming up, but also probably not at the same speed or rate. Um, but I guess we'll kind of figure it out as we go. So wrapping up to draw back to Aiming for the Moon's kind of anchoring questions, what did books have had an impact on you? Um... The books that have had an impact on me. The first one would be, um, I think I think I first read it when I was 16, is The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. It's a sci-fi novel. Um, but the thing that I really like about her science fiction is that it's not so much about technology. It's really about society and different ways that society could evolve or could have evolved. Um, so that one I, I reread in my 20s and reread in my 30s and it like still holds up. It's really, I think it's a really good book. Um, I also like her book, The Left Hand of Darkness that also made an impact on me. And then um, let's see, there, there's this book I read and this is kind of a risky thing to say because I don't, I, I haven't read it since I was a teenager and I have no idea whether it holds up at all or whether it's any good. It was this obscure short story book called Girl Goddess Number Nine. I, I don't even remember the stories or anything. I just remember that it really impacted me and like opened my mind to other ways of living. So yeah. <laughs> that That's really interesting. Our last question is, what advice do you have for teenagers? Uh, well, I think that your generation should be giving my generation advice and not the other way around because I get the sense that today's teens are much wiser than we have been. Um, I don't have any, well, okay. If I could go back and tell myself something I wish I had like understood or known when I was a teenager, it's that obedience is a cage. Um, rebellion is also a cage. So what you really want to be aiming for is authenticity. You really want to be charting your own path and trying to be authentic. And the older you get, the easier that gets. Um, but yeah, I just wish I had known that when I was younger. That's a, that's a really interesting theory because like the first part is you follow the rules, you're constrained by the rules, but the other is you follow the anti-rules and you're constrained by the anti-rules. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, figuring out which one's not necessarily following either set of rules, which I guess the anti-rules would be, but you figure out the in-between, like which ones are actually true about the world or yeah. what you want to do. So that's really interesting. I'll have to think about that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Darlene, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for having me, Taylor.
Thanks so much for listening to that episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you want to support Aiming for the Moon, please give it five stars and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're interested in checking out more of what I'm doing, go to aimingforthemoon.com, where my behind-the-scenes substack will be linked. Also, any of the books mentioned throughout this episode will be linked below through an Amazon affiliate link, so that'll help support the show. And if you want to see visual aspects in upcoming episodes of Aiming for the Moon, follow us on Aiming for Moon at Twitter or Instagram. And four is the number, by the way. And with that, set your sights high and aim for the moon. Also, thanks for listening.